If you're from Cincinnati, or have spent any amount of time driving the portion of I-75 that passes through it, you know the hulking white building with a tower on top that rises just west of the highway. In a city of architectural gyms, the fortress-like structure in Cincinnati's Camp Washington neighborhood stands out for its size and its neglect. You probably also recognize, to one degree or another, the name Crosley, likely from the industrial empire enterprising brothers Powell and Lewis Crosley built a century ago. By being the first to market radios nearly every household could afford and selling millions of them, the Crosleys helped usher in the age of mass communication. Those radios and the Crosley Company's forays into other industries, including wartime defense contracting, automotive technology, avionics, home appliances, and more, add up to a legacy that continues to echo across the globe. Meanwhile, the building itself has had an afterlife of its own, becoming a popular place for urban explorers and street artists. That exploratory, boundary-breaking spirit has grown more broadly in Camp Washington over the past decade as the community refashions itself as a haven for the creative. What might not be apparent gazing at the impressive and crumbling building in Camp Washington is that much of that history-making took place there. This podcast is the story of a now-empty building helping to change the world, and how the fate of the neighborhood around it is tied up in its construction, its boom years, its decline, and efforts to resurrect it. This is Crosley at the Crossroads, how a Cincinnati landmark mirrors the fortunes of the city. I'm Nick Swartzel. The history of the Crosley Empire starts with two brothers, Powell and Lewis Crosley, who had very different but complementary skill sets and personalities. Together, they made a team that changed mass communication in American industry. They also had a huge impact on Cincinnati and the fate of Camp Washington, where they would eventually build the Crosley Building. Rusty McClure is Lewis Crosley's grandson and author of Crosley, Two Brothers and a Business Empire that Transformed the World. He tells us more about the duo and their start. We're here in the historic Crosley Building with Rusty McClure. Uh, he's the author of Crosley, Two Brothers, and a Business Empire that Transformed the World. You're also the grandson of Lewis Crosley. I am. Lewis uh, Crosley, the younger brother. Right. Thanks so much for being here with us in the remains of, of part of the Crosley Empire as it stands now. Uh, let's start at the beginning with, with the two brothers, right? Uh, Lewis and Powell. Give us the shorter version because there's uh, you got a whole book that listeners should really delve into about their history. But uh, talk to us a little bit about how the Crosley Company rose to such a prominent place in America's industrial history. Well, you started correctly, I think, with the two brothers. So we all, most of us have siblings. So I'll ask anybody listening right now to think about their siblings. And many of us, if we were in a room, I'd ask for a show of hands. How many people would not want to go into business with one of those siblings? (laughs) And the answer would be half the room would be nodding because that's a tough putt. So you have these two brothers They are each other's lifelong best friends. They are direct opposites. They're brothers and they're business partners. Yeah. They're business partners now. Every time you say something like that, the chances of people getting along over 50, 60 years with the stakes as high as the story we're going to talk about goes down. The chance of that goes down. You mentioned that they are opposites. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Like, In what ways are they opposite? Powell flunked out of the University of Cincinnati three times. His younger brother by two years, Lewis, 
was a graduate civil engineer. That's a guy with a slide rule, a very meticulous, careful, thoughtful engineer. In the summers, off-season as a co-op student, he worked for the Army Corps of Engineers. Powell had 10 jobs in 10 years before he could figure out what he wanted to do with his life. They're very different people. Powell had something, though, that Lewis didn't have or didn't want to have, which is this vision, right? Like, so talk to us about, like, his, his drive and his, his idea machine that he was. Um, visions, plural. Powell had a grasshopper mind. He couldn't sit still. He sat in a chair. His knee would jig. He's a guy who would make coffee nervous. He was just one of these guys, all right? He was one of these guys. He could sell, he could think, and he could think about all kinds of different things, and he had Lewis. Lewis would do the younger brother dutiful assignment that most of us, if we were younger brothers, would not do. I would not do if I had an older brother the way they did it, which makes this story so rich. Yeah. And we're going to get to like the specifics of like how the building plays into this in a minute. But first, uh, there's kind of, I think, in the book, a foundational sort of story about the two brothers working together on an early sort of endeavor, a car. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that, because I think it, it echoes through the whole story. Well, that brings in a third member of the story, too, and that is their father. So Pow is one of these guys at this very early age, pre-teenage, 11, 12 years old. He has the first and his most important vision is to build a car. And his father bets him, but it's almost a dare bet that he can't do it. So he sits down and he is going to figure out how to build this car. And his father bets him 10 bucks that he can't do. 10 bucks is an enormous amount of money we're talking like turn of the century, 1900 money. And now Powell wants to do this. He's got it figured out. He's the older brother by two years. And he didn't have any money because he's gone out and taken all his summer earnings and bought all these kind of gizmo gadgets, train sets, and so forth. Down the hall is his younger brother who can help him build the vision that the younger brother would not have. The younger brother being my grandfather, my father's my uh, mother's father, my maternal grandfather. And he goes down to his brother, and his brother's got the money because he doesn't squander it. He doesn't have all this. He doesn't have what I call in the book the grasshopper mind. Hmm. So he borrows the money for the parts. And we're talking about an electric car before there's gasoline engines. And they're going to build this car. And actually, Lewis is going to ride it because he's a younger guy. It's a bet with the father between the father and the older son, not Lewis at all. He's not part of the bet, but he's part of, he's the guy who gives him the money. He lends him the money, and sure enough, they do it. And so now these two brothers have this partnership, and so the first thing Powell does is he takes the $10, he pays his brother back, and then he splits the rest of the money. <laughs> and now you get the picture of who these two brothers are from this little story. Now... Pushing that into a lifelong vision, it's Powell's lifelong vision for his entire life to build an automobile company, to build a car, to mass produce a car. This is before Henry Ford, and he wants to do this in the worst way. He will fail three times at the early part of his business and flunk out of the university's career before he 
launches the Crosley Corporation and ultimately will do that vision. So Powell and Lewis, to a degree, rose to this, this enormous level of, of um, sort of industrial power and, and uh, you know, really prominence, but it wasn't on cars, right? It was, it was something else mass produced. Talk to us about what really got them going. Slightly off car target, Powell creates an automobile accessories company because he's failed three times trying to build a car. You can follow Powell because he now figures out how to put tires around the, top, the, the rims of the tires better than anybody's done it before. He puts little flags. Henry Ford sold stripped-down Model A's and Model T's. Windshield wipers back then were considered car accessories. So Powell kind of settles to be a car accessory company owner. And he's very successful. So the story that you just asked, the backstory I just gave you, in 1921, Powell owns the automobile accessories company. Lewis is helping him. And Powell probably worth two or three million dollars, 1921. They live in a very, very nice neighborhood, College Hill, where they grew up as little kids. And the little son of Powell Jr. is Powell III. And they go to the only store in Cincinnati to get what Powell III on a sleepover at nine years old in this pretty nice neighborhood kid down the street has is a toy. But the toy is a radio. One store in Cincinnati sells hand-built radios, considered a novelty toy, $130 out towards People's Corner. Powell goes there. He's like I said, worth two, three million dollars. He's not paying $130, which is average Americans' monthly pay. Right, right. Yearly pay. Yearly yeah. pay. Make about $10 a month, $20 a month. This is $130. And he comes out with a pamphlet on how to build a radio, which he paid a like, quarter for instead of $130. Two days later, Powell has assembled the parts. He assembled the radio. Now he says, I was right. He's got the first of two thoughts. I was right. There's no 130 bucks here. His second thought, this is not a kid's toy. This is the next great thing. So he gets his younger brother, the engineer, and he says, we're going to go to the University of Cincinnati, hire some engineers, and we are going to reverse engineer this radio down to a $10 item. Two years later, they have figured out how to build in a prototype model a $10 radio. They have made 60 to 70 of these prototype radios. That's it. 60 to 70 of them. And they send them out to the automobile accessories company sales force that I just described. They're battery operated because the average American doesn't have any electricity. Even they're maybe in the town, but half of America lives rural isolation. And those automobile accessories salespeople start sending in orders. The automobile accessories company, the American Automobile Accessories Company, owned by Powell, is in the Flatiron Building on Blue Rock off of Hamilton Avenue, not far from here. 
Right, yeah. Kind of Vandalia Point areas with it. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. see it. If you know what a flat iron building is, it yep. looks. it's real easy to see. It's still there. Two stories. Those orders start pouring in, and within one year, there will be orders come to the flat iron building originally. One million of them. So one fast. million orders yeah. for radios come to the Flatiron building originally, but it's a tsunami. Now, Powell has two more thoughts, and this helps you understand the two brothers. The first one is, he looks at his younger brother, Lewis, and he says, I caught him, you clean him. <laughs> and that's their role. So Powell is the visionary, he comes up with all this incredible stuff, and he turns it over to his brother over and over and over again so he can go on and do something else, which then Lewis will follow along and build the vision that Powell, his older brother, had that my grandfather could never have had. My grandfather would never have had that vision. Yeah, as you were talking about, a million orders come into this, this building in Northside, and uh, they realize at some point, I, I imagine, they need more space. Like That's not going to be enough space to build a million radios. So talk to me about that. My grandfather kept track of the tsunami of these orders. They moved three times that year. From the Blue Rock Flatiron building, they moved three times. The first time it took three pickup trucks. The third move, 15 semis. Oh my in a year, three moves. That's how many orders come in. Now, Powell sits back It says, if I stay out of my brother's way, Pal was this guy who made coffee nervous, right? If I stay away from Lewis, Lewis will figure it out. Lewis sits down and figures out how to put the first assembly line in the history of radio together. Pal's next thought is people, the early adopters, the first people in your neighborhood, your family that is going to buy this new product, whatever that product is. I mean, I have a friend who bought a $5,000 flat screen TV to put on his yacht when nobody <laughs> had it. They didn't have any, I mean, all he wanted to do was tell about that flat screen TV. It's stupid, right? Right, right, right. But there's one in every crowd. We all know those people. They go out and buy that stuff. And Powell, of course, he's visionary. He can think that. He says, they're going to turn this thing on. It's not going to work. You know why it's not going to work? There's no radio station. There's never been a radio mass produced. There's never been the need for a radio station. You have little kind of like ham radio people that go on for an hour every once in a while because sure. it's a hobby. Yeah. It's a kid's toy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now Pow decides he's going to build a station, and now he is in or in a tower, and now he is in a race with his brother who's pouring out the radios in these new factory setups every so often as the orders just keep coming in. They're standing in line, so to speak, for this product like we stand in line for the at the Apple store now. Right. I mean, it's the same thing, except the isolated people have nothing but boredom. I mean, we have, before we had the handheld Apple product. There was TV. Before that, there was radio. Before the radio, there was isolation and boredom. And these people wanted this in the worst way. So now Pow is in a race for his against the time he's putting up in his backyard on Davie Avenue in College Hill. He's putting up a tower and 
trying to broadcast, he has to get license from the government, even back then, for the ability to broadcast. Ultimately, that license will be the radio station with call letters WLW. So he is going to provide the content for these radios. Now, the radios just keep selling. We get to the need for this building. Tell us what year we're at now. So we, we've had these millions of orders since, uh, you know, we're, we're probably in the late 20s at this point, right? The first orders for radios that I was talking about off those prototypes, that's 1923. Okay. The decision to build this, 1928, the building is under construction, 1929. The company goes public, 1929. The Crosley brothers never are in debt. They're going to pay for this building with cash to build radios. This radio manufacturing facility gets altered because they also need the huge ability for an increasing radio station to broadcast the content or there is no need for the radio. So they're going to build this building, and in the middle of building the building, they decide they had two floors, which will be WSAI, the local radio station, and WLW, the national radio station, or therefore you don't need to buy a radio. And so as they are building this building to house all this manufacturing, Lewis, my grandfather, the engineer, decides that they need a shipping facility and so across the alley, across the street, in right here in Cincinnati, across the street, he builds a two-story facility with a conveyor belt to load 30-plus boxcars a day of radios. As the Crosleys worked to establish their business and build the enormous factory on Arlington Street in Camp Washington, the city around them was changing. University of Cincinnati history professor Dr. David Stradling and UC Center for the City director Dr. Ann Delano Steinert talked to us about the broader historical picture of the times. I was just thinking about what, you know, Union Terminal opens exactly during that same time and that it was really a transformation of this neighborhood you know, the the Mill Creek Valley or the Mill Creek, which runs through on the edge of Camp Washington, which had been like a muddy, disgusting mess, is now bordered by this huge rail yard. So I was just sort of thinking about the ways that it might have really transformed this neighborhood for, for the good of big industrial concerns like this one, you know, cons and other big meat packers build big factories right around the same time. Yeah. Cincinnati was really good at building things right on the cusp of the Great Depression. We had Carew Tower, <laughs> Crew Tower had Union Terminal, and That's then we right. had this building as well, yeah. all built at well, what on the outward appearance would be exactly the wrong time. Exactly. Time. Well, and that's, that's one of the things that we should keep in mind is that, again, Cincinnati is not unusual because the 1920s are, 
our uh, booming era, right? Um, and so it's not surprising that people are continuing to, to figure out how in which they're preparing for another decade of growth. They don't anticipate the, the depression. And so it's not just the crew tower that opens, right? The Rockefeller Center in New York City famously opens in, in the same building. year. The Empire Steel Building. There's, there's a whole lot of capital investment in, um, in productive facilities, but also in business facilities in the centers of cities. So um, during this time, too, we're, we're seeing like really the ramping up of like mass communication and radio uh, is becoming just enormous and really important yeah. to people. Um, and so like uh, in Cincinnati, like culturally, we have WLW, which is like becoming this big deal. Super uh, pioneer. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about and if I'm getting out of your area of expertise, mm -hmm. like that's fine. But can you talk a little bit about the impact WLW had? locally and nationally? Well, I can't exactly talk about that impact, but I do have an interesting WLW story, okay. which yeah, is that um, there's a woman that I studied in my dissertation who was um, built, she was born in 1870, so she's Victorian, um, and she was a poet and a playwright. And one of the earliest things that WLW ever broadcast was a reading of one of her plays, like very, very early. Whoa. And I've always thought about the beginnings of radio and how they didn't really know what this new format was going to be or what it was going to do. And all they could imagine was to take things that had been written for the stage and to do them, send them into people's homes over the radio. And how different that would be to hear a play when you couldn't see any of the action and and how, you know, it's an incredibly long format that seems today like you would never put such a long format on the radio. And it's just, it just indicates to me the degree to which, you know, WLW and, and all of those early broadcasters were just kind of trying to figure it out. Like we have this great new technology. We can reach people in ways that we couldn't before, but all the only ideas we have about how to do that are based in what we've have from the past. And so I do think that WLW pretty quickly transformed itself into more kind of what we know today as, you know, short um, music and um, band performances and those kinds of things. But I think at the very beginning, they sort of were like, um, what do we do with this? What do people want to hear at home? You know, how do we make it work? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, one of the things that I'll point to is the way in which WLW makes Cincinnati as a place uh, something that people from great distances will hear about um, and hear from. Uh, that WLW has the ability to broadcast into very distant communities. Uh, one of the genres that it picks up uh, is um, bluegrass. Um, so amplifying the sounds of Kentucky um, through Cincinnati and, and um, farther afield. Uh, one of the early shows from the 1930s, the Renfro Valley Barn Dance, you know, broadcasting lots of bluegrass and making that available to people um, who have migrated into the city of Cincinnati, but also people who are back home in Kentucky. Oh, we can't also forget the way in which baseball, um, you know, Cincinnati right. Reds become uh, the team for lots and lots of people who don't live anywhere close to Cincinnati because they can follow the team on WLW. As the popularity of Crosley Radios exploded at the end of the 1920s, the brothers began to look around for a place to build a manufacturing facility for their products. They settled on a Cincinnati neighborhood already heavily industrialized and teeming with energy, Camp Washington. Meanwhile, however, an economic calamity loomed. We'll explore it all in our next episode. This podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Nick Swartzell. 
Editor, recording engineer, and assistant producer is Josh Elstro. Original music is by Josh Elstro and Leo Mercia. This is a project created by Action Tank USA, a nonprofit partnering with artists to research and promote public policy solutions at the local government level. Action Tank proudly presents this project in partnership with our marketing partner, WVXU, Cincinnati's local NPR affiliate. This project was made possible with the generous support of the Greater Cincinnati Foundation and the W.E. Smith Foundation.